Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When it comes to the Lord Jesus, when it comes to describing the Lord Jesus, normally what we will do is we'll go right for what is the most easy description that we can think of, the easiest description, and that is to say that Jesus is God. And that certainly is true, I have no doubts about that whatsoever, that our God, the living God of this universe, decided to manifest in the flesh and dwell among us as a person. He took upon himself the name Jesus as an identifying name, and he lived among us, he worked, he ate, he slept, he spent time with people, he definitely interacted with the world that he created in a very personal, intimate way. But there are many ways that the Lord has described the Lord Jesus other than just to say that he is God, that there are many other ways that he has described himself. One of the ways, for example, is to be described as a prophet, that the Lord Jesus was identified as a prophet. He was identified as a prophet because he gave prophecies concerning future events. He predicted things that would happen in the future, and many of those things did actually come to pass. He was also a prophet in the sense that he brought forward the word of God. He spoke on behalf of the living God. That is another way to describe a prophet. But Jesus was also described as a priest when he was ministering here on earth. He functioned as a prophet, but now that he has risen from the dead and he relates to us from heaven, also within our hearts. But technically, in a general sense, he is in heaven waiting to return here on earth. During this time, he functions as a priest. His relationship with us is more of a priest than as a prophet. It doesn't mean that he doesn't function in our lives as a prophet. I'm only speaking in generalities to say that he now functions as a priest at this time. But very soon he is going to return, and when he returns, he is going to relate to the world in a different way. He is going to relate to the world in a unique way, and that is as a king. And that's what this program is about. This program is about looking at Jesus as a king, that he described himself as a king, And I would like to talk about what that means. I would like to look at that a little bit more closely and so that we can have a better appreciation for what he is going to do and to have a better understanding with regards to who he is and how he relates to us. I do believe that this is definitely worthwhile. But when considering the Lord Jesus as a king, what does that really mean? I mean, how do we really relate to this notion of him being a king? It can be quite challenging. It can be very difficult for many of us because in this day and age, it's very difficult to find a kingdom. There are kingdoms that still function in this world that are headed up by kings. But in this country where this recording is taking place in the United States and also in the surrounding countries and the countries in Europe and also in Asia and Australia, For the most part, it's very difficult to find a kingdom. We don't understand what it is to live under a king. So when we speak about Jesus being a king, because 
this word, this understanding has been somewhat undefined and people cannot relate to it in the same way that the writer was intending to record when he spoke of Jesus as a king. When that was the case, and of course when Jesus spoke of himself as a king, when that happened, the world was very different and people understood that word in a very different way. Today that word is kind of undefined, it's relatively uncertain. If anybody wants to speak of a king, then they immediately will generally assume that that's referring to some kind of a tyrant or some kind of a major dictator who is trying to find a way to oppress his people as much as possible. But that historically has not really been the purpose of a king. I mean, I understand that most kings, they eventually become oppressive, they become dictators, they become very aggressive against their own people, but they don't normally start out that way. When a group of people decide that they are going to subject themselves to a king, it's not normally done for the purpose of finding someone who will oppress them or abuse them in some way. That's not normally the motive. When a king is established, a king is normally established for some very important purposes. And of course, even after a king has been established, it is normally assumed that the king should perform these particular tasks that a king should have these responsibilities, and if not a king, then also any government in general. And so I'm going to be speaking about this in generalities as well, not just with respect to an individual king, but also uh, with respect to other government structures uh, also, because they all do have similar responsibilities. When it comes to a king, the first responsibility that a king is generally assumed to have is to protect his people from other kingdoms. We normally look at our king or our government as being the protectors of the people from other countries, from other kingdoms, from other nations, from other barbarians, from other people who may decide to invade our country and conquer this country and assert their authority over us as people. So we will normally elect a king or establish a king to have this responsibility to protect us from surrounding nations, and what is required in order to fulfill this responsibility is to have a military of some kind, and this military will normally need funding, and so taxes are then raised for the purpose of funding a military, and the people are also enlisted within a military and are given various positions and are given responsibilities in order to assist the king in ensuring the safety and security of their nation. So we will normally look to a king to fulfill that responsibility. And in many ways it makes sense to have a king for that purpose. Because when you find yourself in conflict with another country, when you're in war, then you normally do not have a lot of time to make decisions. Normally in circumstances of great conflict, things can move very quickly and decisions have to be made very quickly. There is very little opportunity for debate. And if there are some people who are unwilling to obey the orders of the king, then there's very little opportunity to replace them with somebody else, especially when it comes to specific qualifications. It can be very challenging to replace someone. And so the king would need to have authority to make decisions and make decisions very quickly without having to engage in debate or discussion or conflict or deal with somebody being in disagreement with the king when it comes to circumstances like that. I mean, if you were to consider wherever you are right now and you were to look off into the distance and see some great barbarian horde 
of people rushing towards you, and within the next 10 seconds, they're going to be all over you, and they're probably going to cause great harm to you, then you don't have a lot of time to discuss this matter with anybody who may be around you concerning what your response is going to be or how you're going to deal with the present existing threat that is about to happen. I mean, you simply will not have time to discuss this issue. A decision will have to be made, and it will have to be made very quickly if you're going to survive at all. And so a king will normally have this authority, or a commander-in-chief. We have a president, for example, in the United States who has that position as a commander-in-chief, and he will have to make decisions very quickly if the circumstances warrant the fact that there is no opportunity for debate or discussion, but action is required immediately. That is a reality of life, and every government and every culture has always had to deal with this and always will. And so this is the important point, and that is that if a king has a certain responsibility, in this case the responsibility of the defense of his country, if that's the case, then he is also going to have to have the necessary authority in order to fulfill that responsibility. In other words, he has to be able to make decisions in a timely manner, and people have to do exactly what he tells them to do, regardless of whether that decision is right or wrong. We would have hope that it would be the correct decision. And if you have a concern about that, you have to make sure that you elect your commander-in-chief well in advance and ensure that he's very well qualified to fulfill this obligation, if that's going to be the case, or he has to at least establish somebody else to fulfill that role, a general, for example, who can take that responsibility. But either way, this is the key point, and that is that responsibility without the necessary authority will lead to failure. I'm going to say it again, and that is that responsibility without the necessary authority will lead to failure. And this is not just true in a circumstance like this. It's true throughout the entire existence that we have in every aspect of life. If you are working on a job, for example, and you have a responsibility to do a certain thing or fulfill a certain responsibility, then you have to have the necessary authority in order to do that. I myself, I've had several jobs in the past where I did not have the necessary authority in order to fulfill the responsibility that was given to me, and so I just simply resigned. I I left the job just because I recognized that I was going to experience failure soon enough. It was just a matter of time. It's also this way in the home. If somebody's going to have a responsibility, then they have to have the necessary authority in order to fulfill that responsibility. And if someone fails to live up to their responsibilities, the first question you should ask is not, why did you fail to meet your responsibilities? The first question you should consider asking is, did this person truly have enough authority in order to meet the responsibility that they had? And you may not like the way that they would have met that responsibility, but it had to be their decision. It had to be their choice. It had to be with regards to their concern. It's like this in the home. It's like this with marriages. It's like this on the job. It's like this in politics. It's like this everywhere. This is the way life is. And without the necessary authority, somebody else can intervene or be a problem to the extent where they may interfere in such a way that a person cannot fulfill their responsibilities. This is an important point and a very important reality of life. So whenever you decide to set up a king, if you ever have that opportunity to be involved with setting up a new government or a new kingdom 
or a new society or a new community of some kind, you need to first start by identifying all of the responsibilities. You don't want to think about what kind of authority you're going to grant someone. You have to first consider what is going to be the list of responsibilities that anyone will have. And when you consider the responsibilities first, then you will be able to easily identify what authority does this person or group of persons need to have in order to ensure that they will be able to fulfill their responsibilities. And you will also be able to consider what authority they should not have in light of the responsibilities that we often give them. Let me give you a practical example. Uh, in, in the recent era of our nation here in the United States, where this is being recorded, of course, uh, many people look to the government as being responsible for the economy. And the way that I can say this is that many people decide who they are going to vote for or who they are not going to vote for in order to put them in a position of power. Uh, people decide who they are going to cast their vote for on the basis of whether or not this person is going to help them economically. In general, that's how people will make decisions. Will the person who I vote for take more money from me than somebody else will, or will this person give me more money than somebody else will? It normally has to do with that. Or when it comes to jobs, will this person perhaps uh, create more jobs, or will this person perhaps pass laws or make decisions that will make it more difficult for people to find jobs? Well, it wouldn't be such a big deal if I have a job and other people don't have a job, but it would be a big deal if I don't have a job and everybody else does, then I might be making decisions on that basis under those assumptions. But when you think about that, it really does set up a big opportunity for failure, and this is why. Because if you want your government to be responsible for ensuring that you have a job, well, there's only one way that you can truly have a job, and that is if somebody is able to pay you for doing work. I'm sure that sounds perfectly reasonable, that if you want to have a job, then someone has to pay you to do work. I'm certain that many people will be able to provide you with volunteer opportunities, but to have an actual job that you get paid for, then this has to be the case. Now, for somebody to do this, then they have to have money to be able to pay you to do work. They either have to pay you out of their savings or they have to pay you out of money that they are willing to borrow. That is the only way that they are going to be able to provide you with a job. Now, where does government get its money from? Does it produce anything? Does it manufacture anything? And it buys and sells things in order to generate a profit? That's not usually how a government operates. And so a government is not normally operating as a for-profit corporation for the purpose of generating revenue. Instead, what they do is they take money from somebody else who has done that. So if they're going to pay you money to do work, they have to first take that money from somebody else by force. Or they could, of course, borrow the money. But if they borrow the money, then they normally have to pay that money back as well. And so you have to be productive in such a way that you will generate money for them to return the principal and interest involved in that transaction. And if you don't, then it will just be a matter of time before the government is no longer able to borrow enough money to continue paying people to do work because their productivity is not doing anything to generate revenue. Now, of course, in our current monetary system, there is a third alternative that the government has, and that is to just simply create money. They can just simply go to a computer 
and enter a few numbers into a keyboard, and then spontaneously they have money at their disposal. But what that does is that actually dilutes the money supply without it being attached to anything tangible. And so when that happens, then we create what's called inflation that destroys the purchasing power of other people's savings that they have. And so technically, it is a tax. In fact, our current head of the central bank in the United States was recently questioned about this, and he openly said uh, quite directly in front of Congress, he said, I absolutely uh, agree with you that inflation is nothing more than a tax. It is a tax on anyone who has money, the same money that they are creating. And so it's either taxed directly through taking it directly, or it's taxed indirectly through the creation of money, or they borrow the money, but if they do that, then they're not going to be able to pay that money back. So this puts the government in a very awkward situation when you give them the responsibility to ensure that you have a sound economy, or that you have a job, or that you have the opportunity that you want to have in order to make a life for yourself. When you put them in that position, then you have to give them the necessary authority to tax directly, indirectly, or to borrow money that they will never repay. And all three of those scenarios do eventually lead to dramatic failure in other areas of the economy in the cultural structure. They will also lead to a form of failure. And so you have to be very careful with regards to what the responsibilities are and then consider the authority that needs to be granted in order to perform those responsibilities, and that's what a king normally has to do or has to deal with. When it comes to other governments, other styles of government, then they also will be confronted with the same things. The Soviet Union, before it collapsed just recently, had a very interesting economic model in the sense that there was always 100% employment. There was no such thing as unemployment. They did attempt to fulfill the responsibility that the people wanted the government to have, which was to ensure that everyone had a job. However, it still imploded. Their entire structure still eventually imploded. And so even if a government is successful in completely overseeing and having total authority over the economy, that doesn't mean that the economy will actually succeed or be successful. And just because everybody has a job doesn't mean that everybody will be wealthy. It doesn't mean that everybody is going to be successful. The issues are much more complicated than that. And so whenever you grant authority, you must be very careful, especially when it comes to particular responsibilities. Another responsibility that a king normally has is to resolve internal conflicts. And that has to do with the fact that sometimes on occasion the people of a particular country or kingdom may engage in agreements with one another. And one of the parties of the agreement may not fulfill their end of the agreement. If this happens, then the one who has been violated needs to have some way of dealing with this issue. They need to have somebody that they can go to to say that somebody else has violated an agreement. Would you please invoke whatever penalties are necessary in order to deal with this situation, resolve it, execute justice, and make things right and so that I don't personally experience a significant amount of loss because of somebody else's failure to meet their end of an agreement that they made with me. And there are normally court systems, court structures, various judges, various levels of judges that a person can go through in order to get a matter resolved. But eventually, a person may appeal to a king to make a final ultimate decision. 
So a king can be in place in order to resolve internal conflicts. Of course, there are only 168 hours available in a week, and so if he does choose to grant you one of those hours, then you should consider yourself to be quite fortunate given all of the other responsibilities or issues that the king will have to deal with. The king can only do so much, and so if you were in this kind of a circumstance or situation, you certainly could be very thankful for that. But what happens is is that the king will make an ultimate decision and no one else will be able to overrule that decision. He becomes the ultimate authority. Now, this can become quite hazardous, of course, because if a king is an ultimate authority and is not subject to anyone else's authority, then what happens if the king becomes corrupt? What happens if the king begins to make decisions that are really bad decisions, that are perhaps immoral decisions or unjust decisions? What happens then? Who do you appeal to to pass judgment on this king and impose whatever penalty is necessary in order to get him to make corrections? Well, that doesn't happen. That generally doesn't happen. Even in other governmental structures where there's a system of checks and balances, eventually there is a point of decay where the institution of government or the institution of the leading party or the king, whoever it may be, whoever's in charge, eventually becomes corrupt to the extent where the people have no recourse, they have no ability to resolve the matters, to resolve the problems. All they can do is pray that another country decides to make war against their country and conquer the king and overthrow the king and hopefully then establish a new sound government. Now, that may not happen, and in fact, in most cases, it doesn't happen, and so that's not a very likely scenario. There could be revolution where the people may revolt, but that doesn't mean that they're going to set up anything better after they revolt. A revolution is not necessarily the best idea either. This will, of course, depend on the people who actually succeed in the revolution, who survive the revolution, and have the position of authority and power in order to establish a government that everyone else decides to submit to. But that doesn't mean that they are going to be any better than the corrupt government that you just replaced. It doesn't mean that. Just because you have a revolution doesn't mean that it's going to be a revolution to restore things back to a sound environment so that people can truly recover and rebuild their own personal lives. It doesn't work that way all the time. The United States was an unusual exception in the sense that the people who waged war against the British, they were very intelligent, wise people, very educated people, very familiar with the issues concerning governments and concerning the issues of corruption. And those people who succeeded in the war were then able to succeed and establish the country that we have now. But it's very unusual, very unusual to find anybody in this day and age who has anywhere near the remote intellect, the remote knowledge and understanding that the founding fathers of this country once had. It's very unusual to find anybody who can come anywhere near within any remote proximity of the capacity and capability and the knowledge and understanding and wisdom of those people. Today we have other people. We have people who are actually wanting to see people in office who will cause destruction in their lives. We have a very different culture right now, and the chances of it being restored back to the way things were when this country was originally founded, I think, is virtually impossible. We could perhaps see a large number of people 
begin to understand these issues and begin to try to rebuild a life for themselves, but they are also competing with a vast majority of people here in this country who do not know anything about these issues, who understand nothing concerning these matters, and their influence will be there as well, and so it would just be a matter of time again before we end up in the same situation that we are in right now. It doesn't matter who's in power. It does matter who isn't in power because who isn't in power is the one who decides who is going to be in power in various ways, either through their action or their inaction. Either way, it is the people who always decide how they are going to live. And right now, we live in a way that the majority of the people in this country and as well other countries can say the same thing. People live in a country where the majority of the people want to live the way that they are and will be willing to do battle against you in order to keep you from making any changes, even though those changes may be in their interest. This is an important thing to recognize and understand, that the decay of government does eventually happen, and the people will want it to happen. And I realize that that is self-destructive and suicidal, But that is the nature of humanity. The nature of humanity, for the most part, is suicidal and self-destructive. That's just the way things have always been. And they always will be that way, with few exceptions. That's going to be the case. So the only hope with regards to this is that a country will totally, completely collapse and so that the people can rebuild it from the ground up. Or another country may come in and invade and conquer this country, which generally is not a good idea, but that is an alternative. But when you consider this as the situation at hand to deal with problematic kingdoms, then you can appreciate the value of having various kingdoms. That there is value in having multiple kingdoms, because then you have some competition. Competition in the sense that if you don't like the way things are going in this country or in this kingdom, then you can always go to another country. You can go to another kingdom, assuming that you have the freedom to be able to travel and do that. If you don't like the way things are taking place in one kingdom, you can go to another. And so there can be some competition between the kingdoms for good people, for hardworking people, people willing to pay their taxes, and people willing to contribute to their society. This is a reality and can be a good thing. And will always be, of course, until we may have a world government. If we have a world government, then things can be quite different. Because when the world government becomes corrupt... Well, then there's nowhere else to go. There's no alternative. There's no way to deal with the circumstances of a one-world corrupt government. At that point, the party's over, to use that expression, and all we can hope for is the return of Christ Jesus. But I'll speak about that in the next broadcast. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,